You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You might find it funny that one of the protected, nationally protected sites in the United Kingdom is the ancestral house of the Washingtons. picturesque stone manor house and its gardens provide a tranquil oasis and reflect gentry life following the turbulence of the English Civil War. It was the home of the Washington family from 1180 to 1613, Washington Old Hall. So yes, the ancestral home of the family of America's first president is a British museum and tourist stop and I would say... What's a better way to describe it? A nice garden to walk through and have a peaceful moment. But it wasn't something that the famous family member would have known about at all. He certainly didn't visit there, and he wouldn't have known about it. During his lifetime, when he's president in 1792, Sir Isaac Hurd, who is the Garter Principal King of Arms, or the Chief Herald of the College of Arms in London, writes Washington to ask for information about the president's ancestry. Washington has to reply, This is a subject to which I confess I have paid very little attention. According to family tradition, the Washingtons originated in one of the counties north of England. And that's all he could say. Indeed, it goes way back. The Washingtons are, in effect, the Wessingtons, following an English convention of taking the name of the estate that the family was on. Their ancestor, William de Hertburg, was awarded by William the Conqueror an estate. His estate was called Hertburn. He then trades it for an estate called Wessington in County Durham. Wessa is coming, uh, that word, the etymology of it, it's derived from wasa or wheat sheaf. A tied-together bundle of wheat, say. Uh, Kind of fitting, because that was the business that George Washington would get into. So, the Wessington becomes Washington over years of talking and evolving of language. Um, There is in Selby Abbey in Yorkshire, England, a medieval stained-glass window, which bears the coat of arms of the Washington family. And despite the contrast, uh, the, the Washington family throughout much of its history, was on the side of the English king rather than against it, as their descendant would be. I've wanted for a while to talk about where the Washingtons came from, because I think it's an interesting story. We just hear about George Washington, boom, in history, as as if he just kind of marched onto the scene. But they have an interesting story. And the Washingtons did come from England, um, not surprising, as so many Americans did. 
one relative does actually get involved in a revolution of sorts, but they're pretty much on the fringe of life in England. So it's interesting to look at that. The Washingtons were no Carters and no Lees. They were a low-tier Virginia family, comparatively speaking. Augustine, Gus Washington, died when the George Washington you and I know was 11. Planter Leet would go to England for education, but the Washingtons were not necessarily Planter Leet. There was no money for George. At age 14, his half-brother Lawrence urged him to pursue a career in the military. His brother Lawrence had helped lay siege to Spanish South American ports as part of the Royal Navy. George admired his stories of war, but George Washington's mother refused. The Navy was a dark place. It will use him like a dog, she said. So George took up a profession in surveying and waited for his chance. The Washingtons were from England, and there too, we might say, were second tier. You know, there remains today a town called Washington in the United Kingdom, and they do have an American Independence Day celebration each year. In the early 1500s, a Washington was the sheep estate manager for a knight of King Henry VIII. Lawrence Washington met and married a Northampton wool merchant's widow and took over the business. He became Northampton's mayor. After his wife died, he married another widow with lands and built a large estate. He had 11 children and his son had 15. His great-grandson, Lawrence the Builder, attended Oxford, and he became a proctor there. Yet he was loyal to Charles I and purged Oxford of any Puritans and became a rector in Essex. Oddly enough, although they would have a revolutionary progeny and an anti-monarchical progeny, the Washingtons in England were loyal to the king. This is Charles I. As civil war began, the Washingtons took sides. Opponents knew it and called them a malignant royalist. Puritans had enough influence now to kick Washington out on charges that he was a frequenter of alehouses and also encouraging others in beastly tippling. Lawrence had five children, no land, no money, when the king was defeated and then beheaded. Lawrence's oldest son, John, saw the writing on the wall for the family and signed up on a ship to help sail for the shores for a share of profits on the Seahorse of London, a ship going to Virginia. John Washington's voyage was successful. English household goods traded for tobacco at good profit. But at 1657, when on a voyage back, she ran on a bit of ground or a shale and was sunk. Legal action occurred between John and the ship's captain. A magistrate in Virginia, hearing the case, 
took a liking to Washington and introduced him to his daughter, Anne Pope. They married, and the Washingtons acquired their first land in Virginia, 700 acres of land. This expanded to more than double through Headright. Virginia needed men and had land, so you got 50 acres of land for each indentured servant that you could bring from England. John died in the 1670s, having earned a spot in the House of Burgesses, from shame in the old country to elected office in the new. There would be three more generations of Washingtons before the one we know was born in 1732. We talked about, in the Starry Decisis and other topics podcast, we talked about how Lincoln got a lot of mileage over Douglas insisting that there was the Springfield Convention in 1854 and that all of these positions were taken there and that Lincoln was there and he was leading it. When Lincoln not only wasn't there, it was found in the next debate that by the time of the next debate that there was no Springfield Convention of 1854. Lincoln counterattacked with this um, false conspiracy charge, this fake news charge, with a lot of humor. Um, I contented on myself, I contented myself on that occasion with denying, as I truly could, all connection with them, uh, not denying or affirming whether they were passed at Springfield. Now it turns out that he had got hold of some resolutions passed at some convention or some public meeting in Kane County. Renewed laughter. I wish to say here that I don't conceive in any fair and just mind this discovery relieves me at all. And then the audience is like, what? Were you at the convention in Kane County? I had just as much to do with the convention in Kane County as that at Springfield. I am just as much responsible for the resolution at Kane County as those at Springfield, the amount of responsibility being exactly nothing in either case no more than there would be in regard to a set of resolutions passed on the moon. The crowd laughs. You know, in the future, we got to do an episode focusing on Nixon's taxes. Watergate gets all the attention, and certainly it contributed to even this secondary scandal, but there was indeed a Nixon scandal involving his taxes and only the provision of the Ford pardon that covered any crimes he may have considered probably allowed Nixon to escape a prosecution based on the highly irregular tax returns that he submitted during the time he was president, doing things like taking write-offs that just were impossible. And, um, you know, someone with a, here, here's for example, a, Two hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars salary in nineteen seventy, paying seven hundred and ninety-two dollars in nineteen seventy-one. Two hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars salary, paying eight hundred and seventy-eight in nineteen seventy-two. Same thing, paying four thousand dollars, using very creative write-offs. Things like, uh, you know, um, putting too much of a cost basis for the sale of a home and things like that. Uh, selling his papers and taking a write-off for it. it, it it's really um, 
a lot of questionable things. And um, the IRS, after Watergate, had a little more political cover. You know, they weren't going to do that to a president at that time, but after Watergate, started looking at it more. Presidential returns are kept in a locked safe a few steps from the commissioner's office in Washington, the Wall Street Journal said in 1973. So I was really glad to have David Priest on to talk about Calvin Coolidge, talk about issues of mental health, talk about a story that is always mentioned in the descriptions of Calvin Coolidge's presidency, but I don't think seen in the entire dimensions of it, that he lost a son while he was in the White House, and in, you know, as Abraham Lincoln had as well. The And at the risk of sounding silly or something, I just think we have to talk a bit about um, one of the ways that he sought to improve his mood, and that was the mechanical horse. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It starts with Calvin Coolidge loved horse riding. And I think it, there are two um, explanations for why he wasn't able to do a lot of it. And one sounds better than the other. One is that the Secret Service said he couldn't go horseback riding. I don't know. I mean, this is 1924. I don't know if the Secret Service had evolved to that. But the other is that um, Coolidge um, did not have time. I mean, there's just a time in taking getting out to where you can ride a horse. Uh, and so a friend, admirer, John Kellogg, who was the same person behind the um, Kellogg cereal, invented this electronic horse, um, which was an attempt for automatic exercise, a riding horse. It imitates single foot trot and uh, also a gallop of a real horse. Um Kellogg was a proponent of better living through electricity and had a bunch of inventions like this would vibrate, shake, shock patients back to health. So, I mean, there's some a bit of quackery to what um, Calvin Coolidge is doing here. Do you actually get exercise from 
riding an electronic horse? I don't know. (laughs) I um, can't say I've done that kind of urban cowboy thing maybe once. um, Once in a particular bar in uh, New York that had a, that had it, um, had one of those. I guess there is some exercise in sort of like staying on top of the horse, you know, and so that's that's possible. But he had this in the White House. The New York Times mocked it as a hobby horse. At least one friend said that his strength and stamina as a leader were due in large part to the attention he gave his electronic horse. He rode it three times a day, apparently, and the president's personal physician said that it had medical benefits. Great for the liver and fine for reducing flesh. He um, did have to send for an electrician to repair the horse after it went to berserk and bucked him from the saddle. The electric horse still exists. It's in the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library in Northampton, Massachusetts, and it is definitely something that people like to see. You're not allowed to ride on it, but you can see it. It just kind of looked like a barrel um, with a neck, and it's made of wood, metal, and leather. There's a saddle, and you pushed a button to vary the gait of the horse from trot to gallop. When the White House had to call that electrician in to fix it, that's when the story got out to the newspapers. This is in 1925. So John Harvey Kellogg, who invented the horse, also had a sanitarium and used mechanical horses for his patients. It was in Battle Creek, Michigan, same place where his cereal brand was found um, in the village where there is an exhibit about Kellogg's um, life and work. They have another horse and also a mechanical camel. That one goes side to side instead of forward and back. You can't avoid politics in these things, and the newspapers nicknamed it Thunderbolt. Democrats said the contraption should be called foreign policy because it had no head nor tail. Now, Coolidge isn't the only one that had this. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon also acknowledged that he had ridden a horse. Um, Populist politician William Jennings Bryan owned one and sent another member of Congress. When Coolidge and Andrew Mellon weren't riding electronic horses, they were engaged in making a series of decisions. And one of the decisions that they made affects all of us to the day. We talked about David Priest, how Coolidge was overly concerned with financial details, tax policy. And that's one of those things like you could see it as, oh, he's obsessed in that because he's upset about his son. But you could also see it as, well, this is what he was interested in as president anyway. One of the decisions he makes to save money is that the American currency can reduce in size. At his time, a dollar bill was seven and three-eighths inches long and three and a half inches wide. They decided they could save money in ink and paper if the bills were made smaller. In 1929, a dollar bill became 6.14 inches and 2.6 inches long and 2.6 inches wide. It had a ripple effect through many other aspects of the economy. For instance, wallets had been bigger and were carried in the inside pocket of suit jackets. Because of Coolidge's decision, the leather industry could produce a smaller version that's still in use today, and you could put it into a back pocket. Women's clutch purchases also got smaller because the dollar bill got smaller. It did indeed 
save millions at the time. And large size notes that were still around were dubbed horse blankets or saddle bank blankets. They're because they're so big. There aren't as many of these old dollars around for a very simple reason is that in the next decade, there would be the Great Depression. And people who had been hoarding cash, say, had to start to bring some of these horse blanket notes out in larger numbers of circulation than they normally would. So they're very rare. A dollar horse blanket legal tender note from 1923 could be worth more than $100 today. I also want to talk a bit about Grace Coolidge. We should not think that Calvin Coolidge was anguished in this White House alone. Grace Coolidge, the first lady, also lost a son. Grace Coolidge doesn't get enough attention, but I think among first ladies, coming in a time in the 20s when women were voting in America and involved in politics, I think um, she was the socialite of the family in many ways. Calvin Coolidge was silent. Grace, not always. So she was an instructor for the hearing impaired in the in the past, and she used her status as first lady to raise awareness, educating the public at large, and inviting Helen Keller to the White House. She was able to raise two million for the Clark School of the Deaf. And when the first Women's World Fair was held in Chicago in nineteen twenty five, at the American Furniture Mart building. It was officially opened by First Lady Grace Coolidge. Entirely run by women, consisted of 280 booths representing some 70 women's occupations, and it drew about 200,000 visitors in the one-day show. On the fifth anniversary of her youngest son's death, Calvin Jr., Miss Coolidge published a poem in Good Housekeeping magazine. This is the fall of 1929, just before the wedding of her oldest son, John, to Miss Flores Trumbull of Connecticut. Here's Grace Coolidge's poem. You, my son, have shown me God. Your kiss upon my cheek has made me feel the gentle touch of him who leads us on. The memory of your smile when young reveals his face as mellowing years come on apace. And when you went before, you left the gales of heaven ajar, that I might glimpse, approaching from afar, the glories of his grace. Hold, son, my hand, guide me along the path, that coming I may stumble not, nor roam, nor fail to show the way which leads us home. Grace Coolidge. She would receive $250 from writing this poem from the magazine, and she would send the check to John and his new bride to use it for something in the new home in some way that his brother might have chosen were he here. We have no idea what uh, John and Florence used it on. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What could go right? 
is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. On the uh, Abyssinia um, episode about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia and Ethiopian resistance. Uh, received a couple questions on that, and I think, um, and, and a lot of compliments. I thank people. I did want to state that it's, <laughs> it was an episode completed in about two days from research to finishing editing, and that is highly unusual for my history can beat up your politics. Usually what I'm doing is a lot of research, and then I'll get to that recording later and the editing sometime after that. In this case, because of world events and the terrible invasion of Ukraine, um, I was looking for something I could say, something that would contribute, and thought about doing a Ukraine episode, but there's so much out there already and very little that I can add. There's a little bit to say in terms of Ukraine and its history as being part of the Soviet Union and not being as happy a member of that Soviet Union as it might be portrayed. But that's something difficult to say because there was the Soviet period was so long and eventually everyone had to be kind of acclimated to it. There wasn't public discussion and protest wasn't, uh, wasn't allowed. But you saw more dissent and more uh, complaints about the government in Moscow in Kiev than uh, you might in parts of Russia. But that, that's a good way to put it. Nonetheless, um, Khrushchev was Ukrainian. Um, the Soviet Union was diverse. Ukrainians were part of the mix along with almost every nationality you could think of from Chechen to um, ethnic Korean Russians to Tajiks to uh, Azerbaijanis to people we might consider Intuits, uh, Eskimos, um, to Latvians and Lithuanians, to Russians. 
a lot of nationalities marrying each other and Ukrainians would marry Russians and still today. So it makes this war that's going on more sad, but there is a long history of Ukrainians being kind of unhappy with their role in the Soviet Union with Russia that I believe that history helps to spur on resistance because things were not happy. In other words, there was a lot of thought that you're stealing the bread from us. We're the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. We're sending wheat to Moscow and then we don't have enough on our shelves here and things like that. Um, there's a lot to say, but I felt like I didn't have enough for an episode to talk about Ukraine alone. So what could I find as a parallel? And I looked to the Italian invasion of Ethiopia and found that contrast, it wasn't exactly the same. No two events in world history are the same. Um, for instance, there was much less resistance to the Ethiopian invasion within Italy than you're seeing in Russia today. Um, in fact, there was tremendous support and it helped consolidate Mussolini's power and people were sending their gold rings to help the cause. Um, there's differences there. There's also the huge difference in that Germany did the power play and supported Haile Selassie's government, uh, in that, in that small way. So, um, However, other aspects line up pretty well. There's a stronger than expected resistance, stronger than expected, but still not militarily significant. I, I may have been at the risk of overplaying it a bit because one thing I wanted to make clear is that it's mostly just the fact that Mussolini thought he'd be in Addis Ababa by, uh, I don't know, a month or so. And that didn't happen. It took six months. But nonetheless, he did reach there and the Italians did control the country, albeit with a lot of guerrilla fighting over several years. But in large battles, for the most part, once the introduction of poison gas was used, it was hard for the Ethiopians to mount resistance or, as they wished to, mount an offense. I do feel like had the communication um, routes been attacked, the Italians would have had a much harder time. But the use of the air force and poison gas prevented that. I don't believe the Ethiopians would have been able to hold off um, the Italians without any intervention from um, Britain or another country that wasn't forthcoming. I only believe that um, they would have inflicted more damage on Mussolini, making the invasion less popular. And you have to remember fascism was based on this concept of this greater Italy and this growing Italy and that Ethiopia was just going to be the next colony and the place for Italians to settle. And therefore, the harder it was to win, it would convince Italians this isn't a great place to move to and live. It's not going to be safe there. And that, that is to some degree what happened. They were never able to make an Italian colony out of the Tenbien the mountain region that we were describing were the battles where they couldn't really settle it very well. They could barely build roads. They did, but when they did, road crews were under attack often. So it was not a the, the new Italy that uh, Mussolini would have presented. And, and that would have been even more so if uh, more damage was inflicted on the invaders. It might have also stopped Mussolini from being aggressive in other areas like Albania. We just don't know. Um... But I did want to talk about it. One quick note that uh, we mentioned that Hal Hali Selassie 
ruled the country until the 1970s when he was assassinated by the Deng. I did want to point out that that's more controversial than just the quick statement we made. Originally, it was said that he died in his sleep of natural causes. It's an investigation later in the 1990s where the Ethiopian court described that Emperor Haile Selassie was actually strangled in his bed in 1975 by the leaders of the Marxist military coup. And charges of genocide and murder were read against 67 members of the former military government of Lieutenant Megistu Halimariam and said that the emperor's opponents had met in 75 with complete premeditation resolved that his imperial majesty should be strangled because he was the head of the feudal system. It was a legend for years that the 82-year-old emperor was suffocated with a pillow by an assassin. Uh, after being detained in the Grand Palace for a year. And so it had been established in a Ethiopian court that these rumors were true. But initially, yes, the reports were that he died of natural causes. There were 2,000 killings and disappearances alleged to have been ordered by the military government. So it's just another sad story for the country of Ethiopia that um, we've seen so many times around the world that when there's no democracy... Um, there's no safety for person or property as well. And um, that's something we have to always be aware of. I want to thank you for listening. Just a few leftovers from the Coolidge and Ethiopia episodes. Thanks for supporting the podcast.